Here at HorrorOasis.com, we are advocates of the horror genre and strive to amplify underrepresented voices in the horror community. This space is for indie artists to promote their work. Please enjoy your stay, and hopefully it's not your last. A father's grief, a child's abandonment, a lover's transformation. Peel back the skin and witness the beating, bloody heart of author Eric LaRocca's debut fiction collection, The Strange Thing We Become and Other Dark Tales. Hot off the release of the best-selling novella, Things Have Gotten Worse Since We Last Spoke, LaRocca's new collection features eight chilling tales of the macabre. Praised by iconic voices in horror such as Daniel Krauss, Tim Wagner, and Chad Lutsky, this collection is sure to be one of the most talked about collections released this year. The Strange Thing We Become and Other Dark Tales releases on September 1st, 2021 from Off Limits Press and is available to order wherever books are sold. Looking for your next horror writing podcast fix? The This Is Horror podcast for readers, writers, and creators is the ultimate show for writing advice, tips, and a personal look into the lives of all your favorite authors. This is Horror Podcast. Listen in to long-form conversations with some of the best writers and creatives on the planet. Over 400 episodes with masters of horror such as Joe R. Lansdale, Chuck Palahniuk, Josh Mallerman, Joe Hill, Charlene Harris, Craig Clevenger, Ellen Datlow, Kathy Koja, and many more. The This Is Horror Podcast. Listen in at www.thisishorror.com. That's the This Is Horror Podcast for readers, writers, and creators. Thank you for joining us with another episode. Before we dive into the intro, just want to remind you, our friend Michael David Wilson over at This Is Horror Podcast, he has a uh, editing and writing consultation service. He has worked with authors such as Josh Mallerman and David Moody. For more information on that, go to michaeldavidwilson.co.uk slash editing. And welcome to Dead Headspace. This is episode 114, and I am your host, Patrick R. McDonough. We are not joined today by my co-host, Brian LaFaro. He will be back for the next episode with Heather Levy. Uh, this is a part of Silver Shamrock's Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and On Burying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. Today, I'm talking to the author of quite a few Quite a few great books, but uh, the one we're going to probably focus on today is The Last House on Neela Street. That comes out soon after this uh, recording. Uh, please welcome Katriana Ward again. <laughs> I'm sorry if I messed that up. I'm just going to refer to you as Kat from now on. So ah, say hi, Kat. Perfectly. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for having me. 
it's a real real honor real pleasure um there's so much buzz around this book but we can definitely we'll dive into that soon and this is a spoiler free uh episode spoiler free show so um just have to put that out there ahead of time for listeners let's start with, with the baseline question what got you into horror well, I mean, I think that horror is often the refuge of the of the lonely and the lonely teenager in particular. So I had quite and I had quite an itinerant childhood. So I we, we grew I grew up in Kenya, Madagascar, Yemen, Morocco, and um, you know, but it was pre-internet days as well. You don't really you can't really take your life from one place to another. So you can't really take friends. What you can take is books. Um, and I, I found, um, particularly the novels of Stephen King, incredibly kind of um, comforting in a way. I suppose comforting might sound like a strange word to apply to horror, but I, I don't think it is. Mm-mm. I think that knowing that someone else is afraid is incredibly um, reassuring, uh, you know. Um, and then <laughs> probably the thing that really started, um, started my my, my really intense interest in it was we moved around a lot, but we went back every year um, to this one place on Dartmoor, which if you don't know what Dartmoor's like, it's, it's, it looks very like Scotland. It's very wild, very bleak. It has wild ponies wandering all, all over these moors. Um, and we, were, we stayed every summer in this house, uh, which had been, I think it was oh, 800 years old, very old, very spooky. <laughs> and um, from the age of about 13, I would wake up every night with a hand in the small of my back, pushing me very firmly out of bed. And I'd, I'd fall on the floor. And I could feel every finger in this hand individually on, the, on my back. Um, and I, I, I think I slept on the floor in my sister's room for about for about two two summers steadily and you it's so weird isn't it that sort of thing because you don't tell an adult do you because everything's so weird when you're a teenager anyway it doesn't seem any more or less weird than anything else um and i i um it was probably the most frightened i've ever been in my life it's a kind of fear that doesn't really have any relationship to the daylight world like you don't feel it in the in when in the light and when i first read my first kind of gothic story, which was The Monkey's Paw by W.W. W. Jacobs, I felt that fear again. And I thought, well, this is where you put it. This is where you put that feeling. This is the architecture that can cage cage that fear. It was like a revelation, really. Um, and I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd hasten to add that um, when I was in my 20s, I, and with the invention of Google, which was very helpful, um, I discovered what this thing was, because I still, I still do get them occasionally it's a hypnagogic hallucination which is just on the cusp of sleep you you hallucinate very strongly not just visually but also with sound and with with touch um but i don't think it matters really what it was i think what's what really the thing i carry away from it is is that intense cold fear it's like a hand reaching inside of you is absolutely terrifying so for me that 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 was sort of where i started out and when i first started writing that was what that's what immediately just naturally naturally came out um for better or worse man that a hand how you can feel see just you're talking and you're not even having an editor (laughs) fine-tune these words i'm just like that's one thing i took away from uh that was my introduction to you was the last house on needless street but you, you as a as a as a writer myself a reader I appreciate when you 
string these certain words together and it kind of focuses on these fine details that you can say oh a hand touched my back and that's creepy but the way you add to it how you could feel each individual finger now that puts it up another notch and that's making as i say it's making my if i was doing this at night my my brain would be tingling right now that's so amazing and isn't that what it's about though all of you know sharing your fear writing horror is yeah. about is about saying i'm afraid of this yeah are you afraid of this too it's a sort of great act of empathy isn't it i think that you put your finger on that there i think not a ghostly okay. finger a real finger <laughs> it, the thing is is that i agree it's a uh, books are you know stories are a way for me to say this is my um, this is how I walk through life with this experience. Now you can understand me a little bit better. And you just and you you I'm piggybacking off of you. Fear is uh, innate to all of us. I mean, think about think back way when the species started. I mean, like we I'm sure we were in like caves around fires because darkness is scary. And mm -hmm. we're still um, I think it's fair to say that at some in some degree, all of us are afraid of the dark and um you covered fear really well in a really interesting way with needless street um i would like to step back from that and go to the earlier days of your writing when you set out for okay i'm a right i want to be a writer i want this to be my life um did did you have one focus on this is what scares me or did you kind of just let it I'll go on the page. I think I think what was interesting is that having not thought about that experience and um, uh, with the hand and the small of my back for many for many many years what immediately leapt out onto the page was uh, a version of that as I mean as uh, as people may or may not know the my first novel raw blood is a ghost story or the girl from raw blood is in the states and um I I was I was su surprised by anyone, and it just goes to show how writing happens almost off stage, like backstage in your mind a lot of the time. What co what comes out at the end, you're often quite unconscious of the processes that have been going on. Uh, but I did I do feel like it's a, it's such a, a universal leveler fear, isn't it? I mean, yeah. not all, you know you think about romance as a genre, that's great, but not everyone falls in love. Not everyone would experience love in their lifetime. Fair. Everyone yeah. will be afraid. You know, mm -hmm. it's something that we, we it's one of those one of those three certainties <laughs> um, from the day you're born. You come out. Yeah. What the hell is happening? What's life? Uh, yeah. So, and it's how we learn, isn't it? It's how it's how we it's how we learn and survive. So, you know, although it gets quite a bad rap, it's incredibly useful and critical to keeping us all on this planet. The, you know what? It, I don't know why this made me think of it, but uh, Chuck E. Cheese, are you I'm only asking because, yeah. OK, I don't know if that's super well known outside of the States. I know you were born in the States, but OK, so my wife and I go there. My son's almost two. And uh, we're like, well, he's old enough now and we're, he's having a great time. He he loves playing uh, chase. So he loves mom and dad going after him. And I'm just like goofing around following him. And he's running towards this one door and the door opens up and it's um, one of the workers in a Chuck E. Cheese costume. And his face, my audio listeners won't be able to see this, but um, mimicking my son, he goes to, and I don't know what this says about me as a person, but I knew he was okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I thought it was kind of funny and interesting at the same time because I, I think I would react like that. And that mm-hmm. fear of the unknown, um, like, it, it's funny to me because he, we know what that is. That's a person. But to him, that's the very first time he saw that in person and he was mm-hmm. terrified. Come on. Uh, um, I'm not sure how you follow up that, so I'm gonna move on to. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was. No, it I... made me think. It made me think. Um, I was thinking. It made me think about um, how I, I was thinking about your more your reaction really, uh, which which was that, that you found it funny. Because, I'm probably fucked up for that. <laughs> you do make a choice quite quickly, don't you, between utter terror and laughter. There are yeah. two. They're somehow quite close together. It's a strange one, isn't it? They kind of hold hands, or like those sisters yeah. in The Shining. Once, once horror, once comedy. Oh, you need yeah, that terrifying film. You, yeah, and you know what? I, I really think you need both of those, at least a little bit. And you, um, this doesn't spoil anything. I, I thought it was funny at first, and then I understood why Olivia the cat in your story kept referring to as every human or male human as Ted. Yeah. Um, for me, my experience was this is this is hilarious. But then, yeah. as it went on, I'm like, this is kind of sad too. At the same time, but I really, I, I really enjoyed that. And you kind of need that break if it's yeah. two, three hundred pages of like utter sadness. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I I needed her as well. Like, I it's funny, isn't it? Because she she came to perform the same function for me when I was writing it mm. as she does for Ted, the, really? which is a, a little bit of comfort. And I'd look forward to writing those sections because it's quite a dark place to spend your time. That world, um, and so I think she it sort of it sort of became a bit metafiction, really. So she came to she came to comfort me in the same way she comforted Ted, and now I I think she also performs the same function for the reader as well. Um, and it's so interesting what you say about it being sad as well, because I think that was that was where I sort of started thinking about this book um, was. Um, and as you know, it grows far beyond this. But I started thinking about it in terms of serial killers and their pets, which I'm completely fascinated by, because obviously the pet, the animal is forced into this relationship of dependence and love with someone who is dangerous and uh, devoid of emotional affect and somehow someone who and the paradox is there as well on the side of the of, of the the owner or the or the human animal who who's in the who is the forms the other part of the relationship who's a killer because they so often start out with uh hurting animals and yet they're able to form you know incredibly needy relationships with pets like dennis nielsen is the one i i, I first thought of because he had um I don't know if people are familiar with him over over in the US, but he was uh, he preyed on vulnerable young men in the late 70s and early 80s and uh, killed them, ate them sometimes, and buried a lot of them in his back garden. But he used to keep he used to keep them around the house for quite some time. And um, he had this dog called Bleep, and he was incredibly fond of Bleep. He loved that dog. When he was arrested, the only thing he really cared about was what had happened to Bleep, um, who I fear, obviously, understandably, I'm, I'm afraid to re- to report, did not meet a good end because um, no one was willing to take on a dog that had lived with a cannibal. Um, uh, uh, but I thought about Bleep and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to have a sort of naive, almost like a naive narrator who doesn't, who, and, where the, and I always love this in books because you so rarely get it, where the audience knows more than the main character. 
and you're watching you watch the cat gradually um come to understand what the person she lives with is and does um but i realized it was too small a story that that i thought that that canvas isn't large enough we don't get to tell all the all the all the you know the the wider story of like trauma and suffering mm. if we just stick to the cat's perspective. So so I broadened it out, and as you know, it exploded into a many tentacled monster of a narrative that <laughs> takes in all sorts of things. But and um, that was where it started, um, because yeah, it's a very strong fascination of mine. So before before I finish this book, um, I this is so weird. How fun! It's just, it's really funny how life is. My wife and I were like, well, we finished some of our shows and all right, on Netflix is what we mainly watch. And uh, we're scrolling through and she says, this is the funniest thing. Brennan and my wife don't they don't like horror and audio folks. I'm doing air quotes and I'm like, but they both really are very intrigued and fascinated by serial killers, which nice. that's a subgenre of horror or yeah. crime or they all blend together. And we, we're looking through and we're seeing what's new on Netflix. And uh, we see Memories of a Murder of the Nielsen Tapes. And that came out this week. And Yeah, I've, I've watched it. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's, um, it's, 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 it's chilling, isn't it? I mean, if you wrote it, if, if someone had scripted that, you'd say it was overkill. Yeah. The and one. that bit where he's, eat, where he's eating, putting hot sauce on his curry in prison, and you can hear him eating. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't get away with that. You know, your editor would scrap, would, would put a red pen through that. <laughs> but it's real. And and that's it's so that's so interesting, isn't it? Because I know exactly what you mean about this juxtaposition or this, this opposition between, like, true crime and mm. horror. I'm sort of the same. I'm 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 so easily frightened by anything fictional that I I find it difficult to watch horror, which I think is I think is actually the case with a lot of horror writers. I think that's part of what makes you a good writer is, is you're afraid of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I I'm completely insatiable when it comes to true crime. And so I was talking to a psychologist friend of mine about this, and she said, you know, it's a it's a common appetite. I'm not I'm far from alone. And um, she said, well, I said, well, why is this? And she said, well, you, you know, when you meet an anomaly, something that, that deviates from the social order or, or from, from, from your normal behavioral patterns, you can do one of three things. You can uh, fight it, you can run away from it, or you can make friends with it. Those are the three kind of adaptive responses. And in a way, there's a, it's a sort of, and I think particularly perhaps for women, I don't know, there's a sort of sense of arming yourself there's a sort of sense of of inoculating yourself against horror in 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 terms of the feelings that might that you might have, be forced to experience one day but also a sense of just of taking in everything you can in order to be perfectly equipped for this you know hypothetical situation and i'd never thought about it like that before it isn't it is a sort of evolutionary um response mm. and i found that completely gripping so it, and i suppose the extreme that, to which people take that would be you know women who marry you know the 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 you know serial killers in prison. There's there's you know there's no better way of making friends with someone than marrying them. I guess <laughs> I'm arguable, but <laughs> right. Uh, wow, there's so many fun things that you said. Comfortable horror is comfortable for you. It, it's fun talking about this too for me. So look, you're all my listen. The listeners that listen to this show, they're horror fans, or crime fans, dark fiction fans. So I'm sure a lot of them can relate to what we're saying. But um. 
I'm going to focus on one thing earlier about, first off, how uh, Dennis Nelson narrated the, it's his actual tapes, which reminded me of a serial killer I was introduced to a few years ago, Edmund Kemper. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Because he he's also a narrator, but of, of fictional books. Um, I, I just, <laughs> the, the I, thing... I, I've, I've heard a bit of this. Yeah, it's the two things about them that I thought was identical was uh, the cops didn't know if they would get any information out of them, and then they both cops or cops that have talked to both of them, they have said they overshared. They said everything, and that's what Nelson kind of seemed to pride himself on was that he is the most forthright serial killer in Britain ever, and. But, well, that's his na- that's his self-constructed narrative, isn't it? Like, I'm always yeah. a bit suspicious yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah. um, um, but the creepiest thing was in the for me was in the beginning when they describe how there's a manhole in Nelson's apartment complex, and they said that the um, I think it was an engineer found bones, but they said also they found pieces of flesh, and to yeah. think of it as like. Like I work in a waste, I work in the wastewater department in my county, and to think that like I've seen nasty shit down there. Like I have to clear some. To not going to too much details, but there, to, to, I clear what's called uh, fat bergs or big grease balls from cooking oil and, and, and um, rags. It's just a wow, term so to cover. You really know about horror. <laughs> yeah, to um, to say rags is just like actual plastic uh, bags or actual rags, but. If I saw that, I I think I would have to take a few days off. I I mean to yeah. to to think you see like we see each other's flesh every day, but to to see it disassociated from the body, uh, that makes my mind broken. Yeah, it I I think that's I think that's fair. It, it, there's something about transforming a living. I mean this the. You know, the transition from living to dead is momentous enough as it is, you know, like the transition between the difference between uh, between not dead and dead is just so, so incredibly massive anyway, that the conception of that person becoming not only, you know, but stopping, not only stopping living, but becoming a sort of object to be treated like waste to be treated like, uh, you know, in the in the casual way we, we, we treat sort of. I don't know food or waste or things like that is is uh, you know it it everything that we have been taught revolts against it in the most literal sense of the word. Yeah, and you know going back to one more point you made um, where you said uh, it's you think it might be more related to women um, where they feel a certain way with protecting yourself. I think that's very accurate because yeah, in this world it's sad to say, but men are usually the offenders because they're physically. Yeah. They're typically physically more uh, imitating, uh, not imitating. Um, I'm struggling to find words. Like Ted, uh, tenses and words are hard, but they're more. <laughs> they're they're scarier at times, and, yeah. and that's sad. I think that's. I mean, it's 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 all sorts of things, isn't it? It's cult. It, it's cultural as well. We have we kind of there's 
you know, I, I, there's, there's that myth of the, you know, the, the fascinating, devious, clever serial killer, which is complete garbage, obviously, because ser- serial killers are mostly opportunists, and uh, yeah. the re- most reason most people die is because they won't be missed, um, and the vulnerable, the vulnerable are the first to die, and that usually seems to, uh, at least historically, counted for um, women, children, and gay men. Um, and in the sense that I know what you mean about this, and there's there's this, the Lake Sammamish murders have a particular effect on me, for, for instance, where I just, for, for those who don't know, very briefly, um, Ted Bundy, I think it was 1978, 1978, on the, right. on, I think so, and, and very late in the summer, um, at Lake Sammamish, where there was, it was a weekend, I think it was Memorial Day weekend, even possibly, and there was thousands and thousands of people, families, friends, people with coolers, music, blasting, and Ted Bundy spent the day there, he had his arm in a cast, went out, went up to uh, various women, um, introduced himself by name, uh, separated them out from their friends and or family, uh, and uh, first of all, I think it was uh, Denise Nasland, and second, Janice Ott, and took two women in one day, uh, from the middle of a crowded, fl- sunlit shore, and killed them, and they were found a couple months later on a hillside. And this this idea that you can you can walk up to to someone, to, a man can walk up to a woman and and take take her away in broad daylight, at, with, you know, with no pretenses and kill and kill her is, is kind of terrifying to me. Um, I should also. I want to, also the detail that always gets me is that cast, right? So he was he got them away from their group by asking them to help him. Mm. So they died because they were kind. And this to me seems so such such an egregious, cruel blow, you know. It really is. Uh, it, it makes you think. It's like you you could you don't know who you're walking by most of the days. So you don't pay attention. It's crazy. Um, is that what you named him, Ted? Your protagonist. Um, yes, because I'm so afraid of that event. Yes, it is. I I, I want to I want to re- emphasize that the, this book is not based on on Ted Bundy at all. Right, right. What? Can, well, there is a sort of there there is a sort of echoes of my fear of that event that run through run through the book. There's there is, for instance, a lake, um, and there's a bit in actually the book by I think it's I want to say Robert Keppel. Is that right? When he was talking about the recovery of the crime at the crime scene, I don't know how strong a stomach your listeners have, but there was some, um, you know, they had they had to do a recovery at that at that scene with um, Janice Ott and Denise Naslund's remains that which were unprecedented. They'd never had to, to treat a scene like that before. So, for instance, they had to gather, and there was also one other un- unidentified, still un- unidentified um, girl who. May have been George Ann Hawkins. They don't know, but um, they had to recover, for instance, the coyote feces because they had they were finding finger bones in the coyote feces around the area, and they also and this is a detail I also because it horrified me so deeply. I have I did also put it in Needless Street, which is they had um, they had to take all the birds' nests in the area um, in as well because the birds have been making nests with human hair, um, and. This is probably the depths of horror, really. Um, mm-hmm. This is where your your nightmares and your your dreams like escape into the real world. Like the worst, most awful thing you can imagine so it is it has somehow <laughs> happened. Um, and I think that my my kind of recoil from 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 those facts does make its way into Needless Street, even though the the the, the plot and the events and and in fact I think the the way the book works is, is very different. It's not about Ted Bundy in any way. 
Right. Yeah, no, I just, I was curious if it, if the name was inspired by that. And it definitely is part, part. Yeah. It's, I, I think it, I think it, yeah, it is. It's, it's to do with that. How's it feel to have Stephen King blurb your book? <laughs> I'm not going to swear, but like, imagine me doing a long Dead string. Dead of Dead if you want. I just, I just, I think I just shouted the program an hour after it happened. So he took, <laughs> he, I, also, I wake up in the night sometimes thinking about it. And I'm like, did that actually happen? Because it happened during the lockdown over here. And, you know, there was no kind of exterior confirmation. So there was a good chance, I thought, that maybe I just made it up. You know, we <laughs> like, weren't seeing anyone or talking to anyone. And it just, I just wondered if perhaps maybe it was um, not true, but it, it was, thankfully. Um, yeah, I couldn't. It, so he tweeted about it and I, I never met Stephen King. I don't know Stephen King. I don't even know. I, I almost don't want to because I just feel I, I don't know what I'd say to Stephen King. Anyway, um, I, I we got the tweet. Got the tweet. You can see I'm already so excited. I got yeah. the tweet. I couldn't read it because I was so uh, nervous. Is the probably the the mildest word to put on this feeling. So That's I handed unfair. it to my handed it to my boyfriend. I was like, "Can you just read it for me?" <laughs> <laughs> and tell me if it's okay. <laughs> like a bit like opening your exam results, you know. Yeah. I was like, I can't, I can't. Um, and he just looked at it. He was like, yep, think you're going to be happy with this? Yep. <laughs> so, like, he's like the master of the understatement. But, um, I mean, I grew up reading Stephen King. I, yeah. as, I as we we, we, we were talking um, up at the top of the show about this, you know, I, I, I they, his work and his imaginative universe was very much part of, kind of part of part of a part of part of me personally and very much how I you know formed me as a writer so it, I, as I said I still wake up in the night wondering if it actually happened <laughs> which I think is probably the most rational re, rational kind of way to look at it <laughs> I've said this before and I'll say it forever for me Stephen King I think you can't argue with this he's the most successful author ever and the only way you could say someone is more successful in him i guess would be like say shakespeare due to longevity but i think of all of us authors king's going to be the one we talk about forever there, obviously there could be more but i just think also what 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 incredible grace and generosity to seek out like nobody i mean really like i'm so glad that neither street seems to be resonating with people and finding a readership no one knew who i bloody was like <laughs> that's true and you know i, I it's incredibly kind of moving in a way that someone who really could sit back and basically have bar, hot and cold baths and running money uh, for the rest of their lives um, doesn't do that and seeks out authors and supports horror and supports, you know, writing and stories. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm immensely grateful on a personal level, but I think it's really I think it's really worthy of note and impressive in its own right as well, you know. Yeah, I um, you know what? Just I'll be very blunt. I I wasn't aware of you until I don't even know how I saw that, but I saw no the blurb. One was. I know one was. <laughs> I saw the blurb and I'm like, I trust King. That's yeah. And I think he that's probably why he does it. Um, he's done yeah. it his whole career. Uh, Dance Macabre. He, I didn't know who Jack Finney. Was. I know he did uh, Vision of the Body Snatchers, but I didn't know who that author was until I read Dance Macabre. Um. If you're in that position, 
you could definitely break or make an author. And he always, I, I never see him do anything but positivity. Yeah, I would never, I, that's right. I was going to say, like, all he does is, is, is lift up, isn't it? And it's so, yeah, it's a, it must be, must be so strange being him. Yeah. <laughs> um, I often think about, I do, I often think about it far, probably far too often. Like, what does it must it be like? You know, I mean, who just, is it, who, who, who does Stephen King send his books to for blurbs? <laughs> <laughs> Himself. <laughs> His son, Joe Hill. Hey, put my book. I'm your dad. Joe Hill was the most was the one of the first people to read it actually. And I really, um, yeah, he was. I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Joe Hill um, because he read it. Um, he read it and um, and responded really, really early. And uh, he was probably uh, he responded so early that because they got really he got really early arc that we got to put on the advanced reading copies his quote which is kind of amazing really so even before it had gone gone out to to other people he so joe hill kind of saved my bacon really um and i don't know again see this sounds it sounds like i'm making it up doesn't it it sounds like i made it i'm making it up but i I read your book i read your book it's you know i i don't tell people it's five out of five my opinion for whatever it's worth i don't say that unless i mean it it's it's a good book it's a really good story so much it it really burned inside me that book like i could tell you yeah. put your heart in this yeah i i really did i was just i it was it was like an animal scratching to get out it just i couldn't stop writing it and like we were saying it's not entirely a nice place to spend your time but i just couldn't stop i had to, i felt like it was it, it was it, and also writing it i think changed me as well in lots of ways if you you know the subject matter and um doing research for it really changed me like I, I i by talking to people about their trauma and about you know some of the um, some of the mental health effects that that has i i kind of my my the way i see the world and my understanding of what's of what's possible and also of resilience of human resilience was really just expanded so hugely i'm i i felt enlarged by the book just as much as i was writing it really yeah, I saw your um, what's it called? I was gonna say bibliography. That's not correct. The the list of resources that you yeah use and it's impressive. Um, my wife's a social worker and she and I talk. It's the one subject. Yeah, it's the one person in my life that I said any story you tell me about this, I'm not gonna ever write it. You can't. Um, but yeah. yeah. But the stuff she tells me about what she deals with, uh, she's opened my world up to mental health, to um, people struggling to, you know what, even even uh, prisoners or yeah. sex workers. I, I had not like a hateful outlook to either, but I had a ignorant viewpoint for both of them. And and after we had long talks and she told me about working with some um not inmates, but um, others. I was like, they're just people, and that's so. That's such a silly thing that I should have recognized them begin, but I didn't. And, but and it, it's but, yeah, but that's so. That's so. I find that so interesting because that is exactly those words are invented to dehumanize, aren't they? Like the words we use to talk about some pe- some of those people you just mentioned. That it's meant to make us almost like we were talking about earlier to like uh, reduce them to to the non-human to an object. Yeah. Yeah. And it's um, this book. I can certainly see why. And 
once people read whoever listens once they read it or if they have i'm sure they can agree i'm put that much time into this and that much heart um for me i'm reading this and i'm like well what's next and you got sundial out so yes i don't know what else to say about needless street without spoiling it so um if you're okay with it can we yeah. know can we jump to sundial because i'm re- that yeah, cover sure. alone oh my goodness <laughs> what um what's it about what's the synopsis um so sundial is um about a mother, Rob, who uh, takes, who comes to understand that her child has behavioural problems and, um, uh, in fact, might be a danger to her younger sister, Annie. And so she takes um, Callie, Rob and Callie go to the desert, back to Sundial. It's set in the Mojave Desert in Southern California. They go back to Sundial, and um, uh, which is this almost like a sort of, um, like a sort of, um, an abandoned kind of facility in the middle of nowhere with like fences and things like that. And um, Rob starts to tell Callie the story of their past and um, their past. She sort of comes to understand that their past and the, and Callie's present have more to do with each other than, than, than she previously thought because I'm, um, and both of them come to come to fear that the other one wants to kill them. So it becomes a mother, a, almost like a, a, this very tight, very intense emotional standoff between the mother and the daughter. Wow. The da- and Callie's 12. And, the, and uh, so it's a very kind of because I find the family relationships, they're so powerful. My family's lovely. I, I hasten to add like my family's. So <laughs> um, but um I think that's just another way of writing your deepest fears, isn't it? Because my fear is of that misalignment. Like, I'm so afraid of that going wrong because it would just be the worst thing you could imagine. And I think the mother-daughter relationship's really powerful as well. And I think it's often quite sanitized. I think there's a lot of things in, you know, that we feel about uh, about um, about about uh, each other in that in that particular dynamic that are very very strong and not very socially acceptable. But I think that, I don't think that lessens the power of the bond in their way. Do you know what I mean? I think it's just part of it. Um, yeah. So I, I really enjoyed exploring that. And the, the sort of intertwining it with the Mojave Desert as well is amazing. Like uh, there, there's no better setting because there's n- there are very few places on earth that can kill you as easily as the Mojave. I mean, That's Australia, right. definitely. <laughs> Australia was probably, a, you know, cut, puts up a good fight for second place. But like, you know, the, the heat, the cold, the animals, the exposure, there's ev- everything, just pick one. And the, it also it's also very gothic the desert I think because it's got because it's as good as a, it's as good as a set of high stone walls you're as trapped as you would be inside a castle um lastly I because I'm gripped by this is I'm completely obsessed with the late 60s early 70s CIA experiments um which have their most ex- extreme form in the MK ultra experiments um and I have <laughs> spent many hours in the on you know combing through the declassified documents I mean it's mostly it's like three words and then redacted 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 the, is that like know, the LSD period Yes, very much so. And the oh, MK okay. Ultra, yes, and the MK Ultra experiments of like were the human experiments. Um, but there is this one uh, which I uh, just I knew I had to write about, where they uh, they created remote control dogs. So um, they by planting uh, electrodes in the dog's brain, they make the 
one imp- they make uh, they they stimulate the pleasure impulse. So the dog learns to seek the pleasure impulse, and by do and if it's in a certain place, it'll make them turn left. So they can make the dog run in a square or run in a circle or basically operate them by remote control with a little with a little handheld device. The trouble was there's no practical application for it at all. Right. Like it was just literally the definition of the Jurassic Park <laughs> like adage of you were too busy, so busy thinking about whether you could. You didn't stop to think whether you should. Um, <laughs> so they just continued it. But I saw that and I was like, isn't that hor- isn't that a horrible thing to do just to see if you can, you know? Yeah. And that's where horror starts, isn't it? Yeah, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, going back to something you were discussing earlier about how basically, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but basically how we write this horror. And this reminds me, we had Chuck on, Chuck Pollock on earlier this year, and, and he oh, said wow, something. Yeah. He said something about this that I always think about now, um, that we write these horrible events to kind of prep ourselves for if it happens. Yeah. I think that's right. It's like a vaccination in a way. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well said for me. And especially since I became a dad, um, it's the death of a child and it's brutal. And I I don't, I don't enjoy writing this shit. Sometimes like, (laughs) I don't, I don't publicly say this while I do it, but like sometimes I've written the death of a kid and it's not even graphic, but it just guts me. And I, I, I come close to bawling my eyes out, but it kind of like as a dad, it's just like I'm always kind of like looking out for him. I don't trust strangers because I <laughs> watch too many documentaries and serial killers and stuff. And yeah. I let him do his thing. I try not to like hover over him, but it, it kind of at the end of the day feels like therapy. Um, is yeah. that is that kind of how you felt after finishing Needless Street or other stories? I feel, yeah, I think what, what become, what's magical about it is that something that starts inside you takes on a life of its own. And like, because, and, it, and I think once that, once that happens, it stops controlling you. So in that sense, yes, I think it is like therapy. I'm always wary of the therapy writing comparison only because you see, <laughs> <laughs> you know when people do like word vomit, and it's a sort of, and the me 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 novel where it's it's you know <laughs> it's all about it's about the deep the deep profound feelings of of the writer. And right. I, but I do I do think it has I, maybe like therapy is a good comparison, but maybe it's more like an exorcism. Maybe there's a sort of element to it, but there's definitely I do I do get that. I when I finished, I just there's a sense. Of, well, first of all abject exhaustion but also of um of having um taken something out and removed it and i think that's i think that's a very that's probably exactly the feeling that you're talking about um yeah it's a very powerful thing it's a powerful thing isn't it yeah it absolutely is Uh, i'm really curious you have maybe maybe i'm wrong but it sounds like you have a uh, british accent i do but well, you're from you were born in America. I was, and I've had, I actually spent more of my childhood in America than I did. I never lived in the UK until I went to university. But I'm confused <laughs> now. I know. Well, think how I feel. <laughs> um, so there are three things at work here. So first of all, we move so often that I never had time. Like, and also in Madagascar, I was, I was speaking French, so there's no accent there at all. 
um, and Kenya is was is mostly English people. Yemen is Arabic. Um, Morocco again, it's in French. And so and so I I had my parents' accent. Um, when I was a teenager, <laughs> I had a really obnoxious American accent. Um, but then the, what put it probably dealt the death blow to it was um, going to acting school in New York, where you <laughs> where um, you, you can either you can either be cut glass RP or you can be you know standard American. But there's none of this kind of like mixture, which which this sort of mongrel kind of transit mid transatlantic thing that I had going on. And I think it just te- it te- it kind of I think the 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 clarity and the crispness and all of that got with that getting put in makes it sound even more English than it already does. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I I wrote my first two books about the UK and about these wild places in Scotland and Dartmoor, and I sort of there's a huge part of me which misses misses like that part of my background and accessing that part so when I started to write so Sundial and Needless Street are both set in the US it sort of opened up these these quite passionate feelings in me and these memories like I started remembering things that I hadn't remembered about my childhood um and it was really again I guess that's it's the therapy um therapy thing raising its head again isn't it 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 felt like a sort of a, a coming home you know from a writing point of view just trying i'm I'm digesting everything you just said yeah um <laughs> so talk a lot no i love it we we like us to talk a lot but the um me and all my people um brennan and our guest hosts we we like it when the uh when i say we that's who i'm referring to um we like our guests talking like, a lot because it means what's that the royal we yeah yeah we we uh t- it means that we talk less <laughs> but we do learn a lot and i'm so curious i guess as an overview of all those places where you uh lived is what what do you think you took away from each place and i know that's a lot to tackle but it, it, you have a lot of life experience obviously because that's those are i don't know anyone that's lived in yemen or morocco you certainly couldn't uh, you'd certainly have a terrible time living in yemen at the moment um I think, yeah. Well, so my we lived there because my my father is um, a water economist, and the reason you go to those places is to is to um, help design strategies so that people and irrigation and desalination and all these things so that people can have water. Is which, that like an engineer? No, it's more like it's more like. Um, it's more like design, making a plan for kind of the, the economic and the financial and the, you know, and the development plan. It's development. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Um, gotcha. It's, uh, and, you know, it, when, when you, when you see, when you see those places, one of the things that, um, which are always very, all the ones I'm talking about anyway, very, very short of water. Um, and in fact, incredibly arid and dry and subject to drought and famine. Um, certainly one of the things that was drummed into me from a very young age is like, you're fucking lucky, you know, you are, you are a lucky little fucker. And, and that's, I think a very appropriate thing to tell your child, if you know what I mean. Um, I think particularly, but it was, it was, the, the evidence was very much in front of my eyes about that. Um, you know, uh, I, I've never, I've never been in danger of dying of hunger. And I never will be, hopefully. But 
to live in a, live in places where people are daily at risk from that is is mm. very uh, for, it forces you to recognise what a huge gap there is in the world between the haves and the have-nots. Um, this is not a very fun answer. I'm sorry. Um, no, that's fine. The, I also, all my, I suppose, also Madagascar in particular, which has some of the most amazing biodiversity on Earth, um, there are they they estimate that they they discover a new species in Madagascar every three minutes. What? Um, yeah. Holy shit! Yeah, even if it's just a new grasshopper, you know, or a new louse. That's, new, yes, that's that so, blows my mind. Well, it's uh, it's incredible, and you know, you I've seen you know we used to keep chameleons as pets. We used to keep little chameleons which that we found in the garden as pets. Um, <laughs> So I've I've seen this beautiful, absolutely stunning kind of weird nature you couldn't imagine. Really, you couldn't dream up. Like if, again, if you wrote it, your editor would be like, "It doesn't sound believable." <laughs> like we went on a walk once um, in the rainforest, and there are these little ants who who have like these pink and white oval shaped wings. They're beautiful. They look exactly like you know those sugared almonds. Yes. Yes, they look like that. And so they're walking along a branch, they're pink and white, and someone said, oh, you can eat them if you like. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, okay. (laughs) So so I ate a couple, and they they were really fizzy. They were like sherbet, because I think it's because they're like ants, like they have formic acid in them. Anyway, what what becomes obvious is the, the difference between all of the, all of the amazing wildlife that I saw in growing up is, um, is so much more in danger now than it was the coral reefs that i swam in you know Ooh, yeah 20 years ago 30 years ago now it must be um are really are decimated and in danger so i i think what i take what i what i take take away from it is how incredible uh, incredibly arduous lives can be for humans there and how in danger the natural world is um, all over the world. Again, sorry, it's not very cheerful, but um, that's what I think about most when I look back on it. I also think um, that because there was no one else, I gave me an incredibly close bond with my family. And um, that can be, I, I think, you know, that of course I can explore it and a gift, which I can endlessly explore in my writing for years to come. But um, it's, I, I think that those are the things that, that I think about when I look back on it. Does that, does that, does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, it does. That's a really great answer too, because um, you can probably spend a few lifetimes tackling all those issues and have plenty of room to write more books um it seems like you're the type of writer that and this isn't a knock on others but when you put a book out it feels like there's how do i word this it's not just a horror book uh, for lack of a better word there's a lot to it um there is I'm struggling to come up with the proper way because I don't want to sound like I'm insulting other horror writers or books, but <laughs> do it. <laughs> it's not just for fun. There's so much meaning, and the behind the scenes is you can learn a lot from it. And it, it, it's books that if if your other books are like Needless Street, you can learn a lot, and it can change your outlook on life for the rest of your life. And and I I don't think every book does that, which every book shouldn't do that. Some are just for fun. Some are yeah. You know, they all have different meanings, but I, it feels like, at least with Neil Street, that's the kind of stuff you put out. That was my take on it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in that in that adage about writers if you're dying. 
Um, gotcha. Yeah. Because um, I just, I just think it's so it's 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 such a privilege to be able to do this yeah. to start. And I always think just put everything you are and have and and can and and, and can bear into it. Um, and I, I have, so, as, as we, I think we touched on this earlier, but, you know, I've got such a place in my heart for the function that horror performs, mm. you know, the cathartic and uh, going down into the, you, the writer and the reader go down into the caves or down into the dark hand in hand and, and walk through that dark together and, and then come out, whatever the, whatever the outcome is, come out the other side together. Right. You're, and you're making yourself, you should make yourself, I think, incredibly vulnerable as, as a writer, even if, it, even if it's not horror. Now, I actually maintain that all good writing has horror in it, but that's a separate sure. subject. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, I, I think it's your job to, to show people, to, yeah, to kind of split, to crack your chest open, I think. Um, and that, well, that's how I see it. I know there are lots of fantastic books that that are that make you laugh and um, make you nostalgic or make you love or whatever. But this is this is the one that I do, <laughs> the one that makes you terrified. Awesome. And I, it has to, it has you have to put everything you you are into it. I think no. No, I agree with you, and the reader can absolutely uh, can absolutely feel that. At least I, I did. I'm, I can't speak for everyone. Thank you. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know what? I'm jumping so far away from what we were just talking about, but it has something to do with Neela Street. Um, I was really curious how the event with uh, G- Gillian Flynn went. Oh, my God. I, oh, my God. So That's I'm, so cool. Right. <laughs> I've, had a, I've had a year. You've had um, a hell of a year. I've had a year. Um, yes. Oh, my God. I, I, there's a really dangerous thing that happened during that event, which is that I started to feel like we were friends. Uh-oh. <laughs> and I, like, I spoke to my agent the next day and I was like, I think we're friends now. And she was like, you just, just, just may, maybe just calm down a little. Like, no. I'm like but that honestly, with guests too. I gotta be honest. Like, I'm like, do we have a friendship? I, I don't always voice it though. Cause they're like, oh, this guy, let's not go on his show again. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, I, I also feel like, you know, the, we our, our levels of social interaction have been so distorted now. Yeah. If I speak to some, someone on a Zoom call now, then maybe we are friends. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, they, I they don't know where the boundaries are anymore. Um, but for, for <laughs> Gillian Flynn, and I had to make this note to myself, don't call her Gillian, 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 because for English people, that's that's counterintuitive. But um, Gillian Flynn, I was like... <sighs> I was, I've never been so nervous. And also, I think I had to record it because it was, at, um, uh, I think it was West Coast time. I had to record it at two in the morning, right? Oh, my God. Yeah. So I had stayed up mainlining coffee and I was like shaking by the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she's just so funny. And I'd watched lots of stuff of hers beforehand. So I'd have something to, I mean, not that I had didn't have things to talk to her about, but I thought, you know, just to see what her energy is like and see, you know, do a bit of research and do that wonderful thing, that, that, that sneaky kind of like smart ass thing where you quote someone back to themselves. And, um, and so I did all that and I was like, oh my God, she's really funny. Cause she is really funny. She's so dry and so wise and so fantastic. Um, and I, I just, I, I have to admit, by the time we came on, um, I was kind of almost physically shaking. <laughs> I bet. Um, 
Yeah. Um, and then we were in this sort of the, the green room, you know, the virtual green room beforehand. And she came on and I was like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Here it is. And um, <laughs> and, um, and she just said, oh, God, she said something so beautiful and she, about Needless Street. She was like, I just want to tell you, you know, um, you know, I'll say this again in the panel, but I just I, I thought it was such a wonderful book. And I thought you've you've got a real art for, you, you've got a real talent for telling the story and I loved Olivia and I was just oh, you can imagine me just going more and more tense like this um and I just I just burst out I was like oh my god Gillian Gillian you're killing me you're killing me here and she said okay all right well I, I won't embarrass you so she didn't say it again in the because <laughs> I talked you know I, I shot myself in the foot there but um I was so oh, I thought she was amazing and I do think we're friends actually <laughs> you could be you know only you no know. I, I i was very grateful to her again another person who has no need to go on a she didn't she doesn't need to do a panel with me you know she she did that i'm assuming because she's supporting a book that she likes and i found it, it, it again incredibly generous and i'm i'm really grateful i, I just it was one of the one of the best moments of I've had a fantastic year. Yeah, yeah. I was going to throw out there also, I saw that you have uh, some, at least one very awesome billboard of Needless Street on, um, it looks like your London walking tour, which that's so, what's that? <laughs> what's that like just to see, oh, I wrote that. It was amazing. <laughs> no, it was amazing, but no one was allowed out. Oh. <laughs> so I had to go and see them on my own or in groups of two. Because you're not allowed to assemble. You weren't at that time anyway allowed to assemble in groups larger than six. So, and 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 no one was really on the street, but it was an amazing. It was in you know fantastic places, lots of traffic and stuff. So I'm hoping it was just the experience of seeing it was quite something. I have to say, yeah. I thought I again I signed like, a billboard. <laughs> yeah, I signed them. All. That's just, awesome. Just to say I'd been there, you know. Oh, I t so basically tagged them. You tag them. You've been in magazines for this. I mean, it. May, yeah. I don't know if this is too forward, but is it like, is it a matter of you got the right agent, you got the right publisher? I mean, the story obviously deserves it. Well, I had a ter I had a, I had. Sorry, not terrible. I had a slow start, and I. I think perhaps the, um, the, the answer is I did finally. I found. I think I found my stride at the same time as finding a really um, two sets of amazing, completely brand new imprints. So Nightfire and Viper in the UK are both brand new. Viper started, I think, last year. And Nightfire is, is, are releasing their very first titles as an imprint this month, So, yep. including Needless Street. So I think it's a combination of um, pay, maybe paying my dues a little bit in terms of, I don't know that I would have been ready for this Three, five years ago honestly um i i don't know that like i have to write my next book in eight months so that's uh, that's that's tight it's doable because i've got three books under four books four books including sundial under my belt now but i don't know that if i'd been a debut i would have been equipped to do that in that way so there's a sort of there's a sort of um you know serendipity to it but um 
I, I think most of the credit goes to Nightfire and my um, editors, um, Kelly and Miranda, simply because, you know, I, I, Little Eve, which is my previous novel, my second novel, which won the Shirley Jackson, which, you know, which amazing. is, that's no small feat by any stretch. It's incredible, but yeah. it sold minus copies its first year. I, I couldn't, I, went, I basically went to book jail for a bit and um you know kelly and miranda both took a huge leap of faith and said no 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 this is special we can do something with this they you know the numbers did not support them i'm being very open about this because i don't see why um i don't know writers are always weird about their sales figures i think i mean maybe if you'd asked me this time last year i would have been weird too but i'm (laughs) I'm fine now um so i think I think it is definitely having the right team behind you. But it's also, I would also say, you know, I spent so long trying to write the platonic ideal of a gothic novel and these very historical, very historically accurate. With with Raw Blood, for instance, my first one, I Googled almost every word in it to make sure that it wasn't um, anachronistic. So if someone in the 17th century would have used that word, I had to see that that that, that was the case. Otherwise, I wouldn't use it. And it's mind-numbing how much time it took. So... I I think when I, in a way, kind of them not, you know, I thought Needless Street is my last shot. And I thought, I'm just going to write, you know, the book of my heart. I'm going to write the book, the weirdest and the mad anarchic idea that comes to me and and not worry about anything else and not worry about what's been done before and not worry about about the market or a readership or anything like that. I think that I think there's there is a sort of defiant novel in a way, and I think some of that shows through. <laughs> there's relationships in Neela's Street that I didn't see coming, and one in particular at the end. Uh, revelation. There's a big revelation at the end too, and um, I just thought it all tied together really nice. And I don't know if this ruins it. If it does, tell me to cut it. But I it, a lot of it made me sad. But that's not that's not to knock it because. It's a horror book, okay? It's not going to always have a happy ending. Yeah. And I think it... One thing I wanted to do was... It is a horror book, but there are certain... I think horror can rely on certain um, tropes or uh, attitudes, mm-hmm. particularly towards mental mental illness, that I sure. really, really wanted to work with, uh, work against, as it were. Uh, I think this is a book that definitely it, it dresses as it wears the clothes of one thing and then in the third act throws off its cloak, <laughs> um, which is the best way I can I can put it I think. Um, but there are th- there are there are you are, I am using and and you you know you you quite rightly put your 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 finger on it like there's I am using the equipment of horror to tell quite a different story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I, that is, that was important, I thought. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, back to my wife, who I view as, like, the smart, she's my moral compass, smartest person I know. And, and, and it, it has to do with Needless Street, specifically with mental health. And she, yeah. from the early on in a relationship, going uh, nine years next year, and um, doesn't like how a lot of horror movies typically yeah. address yeah. mental health and i never you know you you only know what you know and unless someone points it out to go aha that's a i never thought of it like that i never thought of it like that until my wife pointed it out and for me that was a moment where i'm like 
talk because you talk about at the end the acknowledgments where you talk to these certain people and they open your eyes my wife's opened my eyes big time with that and i'm like Mm -hmm. you know i'm not saying it's an author's responsibility i'm not putting any of that shit on any other writer (laughs) but for me i put responsibility solely on myself i'm not i'm not putting any i hate when people do that like a writer's response like that's a blanket statement they aren't they're they're not helpful um but for me I will try my best, especially mental health, to try to tackle it in a way that isn't offensive and cruel and un- unkind. Not that's not to that's not to say I'm sorry to interrupt. That's not to say that they won't be the bad guy. That's certainly not true for real life. But but to like at least anchor my approach in like this is what happens. But everyone we're all people all people are different some are good some are bad so i don't know sorry if i blathered on it's like silly what I said. it's not silly at all it's not silly at all i'm really resonating i'm really like empathizing with what you're saying i think that's i think that's right and i think it also you know we're talking about the most vulnerable people really yeah um and statistically i love a statistic <laughs> statistically <laughs> more much more likely to be uh, victimized than be perpetrators. So I think that, you know, there's a disproportionate amount of horror that portrays mental illness as a, as, as a, as a sort of, a sort of marker for, for, for villainy or, or for, or for un- deranged behavior or for hurting people. Whereas actually it's very much probably the other way around. Um, we, I mean, we know that trauma begets trauma and we know that sometimes that, um, Sometimes, you know, abuse and trauma can can cause someone to to inflict that on someone in someone in in turn. But the fact is, there are loads of people who are traumatized and abused who don't Um, Mm -hmm. lots far more. Um, And I uh, yeah, I felt really. uh, uh, Yeah, I, I, I felt the people who spoke to me were incredibly generous with their experience and 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 forthright about things which i simply cannot conceive of having experienced so the idea the idea of um you know reducing that to a kind of cookie cutter stereotype or villainizing it see would be abhorrent really um also i asked a question at the end of one of the interviews i did um the big interview I did, which was, um, you know, what, what do you, you know, what, what do you, what do you, what would you like to see represented, like in, in the world about, you know, your situation that you don't, um, and they said a couple of things. One of which I found really interesting, which is they said, well, it would be really nice if the story was about us instead, <laughs> instead of us turning, you know, turning up at the end as an axe-wielding maniac or something, you know, in terms of talking about mental health, you know, it'd be really nice if we could have a story about us. And I think we're getting better, but I think horror has a, still perhaps lingers a little in the backwards there of, um, of relying on, on certain stereotypes. So that was important. It's really important. Yeah. You nailed it. You absolutely, because when I'm thinking about this and I've, uh, I'm, it's so. Me and Brendan were talking about this. He's like, "Good luck, not, not stepping on spoilers with this one." I'm like, oh, "I think we're doing a good job," but I just feel so sad for Ted. I'll leave it at that. You did a great job with that. And um, one thing 
that I want to add to the mental health and the abuse of mm. people in authoritative position is uh, yeah. someone that I care deeply about, a friend of mine um, that's like family now, went through some stuff after she had her two kids and went to a facility and mm. it was it's pretty bad. And she was treated horribly. And that makes me so incredibly, I, I, I'm battling between so incredibly enraged and so incredibly sad because there's probably more instances of that than we know and it's not like anything can happen it's sad when authority abuses someone in a very in the most vulnerable position and that goes back to mental health and and, and you're right you someone like you whether you want to know want, whether you want to admit it at this point or not you are setting the mold for the future for generate for the next generation of writers and Oh my God, <laughs> you are! You're a writer that has the the the, the uh, validation from the biggest writers in the world. So whether you admit it, you, you can see that or not. Like you're telling a writer like me that hasn't published a novel yet, Mm-mm. this is one way that you can approach mental health. And and for me, I'm really key, I'm big on that. And I I won't go into crazy detail, but like I, I'm 32, almost 33. I'm just realizing now that my ADHD has been a huge hindrance for me. And I'm fi- I'm yeah. finally addressing it with a psychiatrist. I'm, I'm on medication. It's very helpful. But um, I didn't realize how much mental health dealt in my life. And it's crazy because I got family members that are in facilities. I don't know what the proper term is, but it's been in my life and my family forever. And uh, that so I'm I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you with this, and I'm 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 really happy with what you've done. If that means anything, <laughs> it means a lot. Thank you for saying that's that's. I'm a little bit. I'm having a moment. Thank you. Oh, you're getting me all choked up. Stop <laughs> the cat. <laughs> oh, oh well. It's it means it, it, it's. Oof. I'm getting teary eyed now because it means a lot to me. Thank you. Well, it means a lot to me too. Thank you for saying that. I'm. Yeah. I think. I think. We could certainly do what well, I hope you write that. I hope you write finish your novel. And I hope you write that. I hope you write you know those stories because I think um, we need more things that tell um, stories of like of those sorts of mental health struggles, and we you know and, and break out of that you know old kind of like sort of like you know like straight eluded like the victor i always think of it as like a victorian straight jacket yeah kind of you know a victorian straight jacket of of representation <laughs> or like the elephant man where it's not i don't think it's mental health it's just a physical yeah but it's just so kind of fetishized and yeah it's yeah it's it's very it's very i think it's very difficult I think it's yeah. I think I think it's very difficult to talk about people as human beings because that forces us to look at them as human beings, and sometimes we don't want to do that because it's easier to not. And I say we, uh, you know, in the in the in the global sense, you know. Yeah, and you know, this just popped in my head. You were talking about how uh, you're like I think mean is it Gillian or Jillian? It's Gillian. Oh man, I messed up. No, 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 no. Don't worry, you can cut it. No, I'm not going to cut it. it, it I, <laughs> I'm not going to I had it in my head the whole time thinking I have to, because as I said, over here, it's always Jillian. So I was like, okay. remember, it's Gillian. <laughs> so 
okay, Gillian Flynn, how you're like, I think we're friends now. Like, I felt, like I said, I felt that way with um, yes before. And sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. But through social media has done something where it's like, you can say whatever you want at any second and there's no filter. There's no, for a lot of us, it's like you see something and you're like, there's no time where when we were growing up, um, I don't think we're very far in age is you can't, <laughs> we got the internet later on in life, yeah. but it's, it's still like, even before then you can't just, text someone and and say what's immediately on my mind your mind you got no time to digest that and and uh there's a lot of ugliness online and and i've learned to just stop applying to it Uh, there really is and there's so much like i think that um having i think we're the, i think we're the lucky ones so having having had i think we're the last people who remember what it's like we are the last generation we really yeah. are yeah um and there's a direct, there's a really direct um, result of that, I think. Um, Louis C.K., who I love as a comedian, obviously mm-hmm. some problematic things around him, but sure. um, I remember him saying, like, <laughs> if a kid throws a stone in a playground, they see the stone hit the other kid, and they can see the other kid cry, and they understand the consequences of their actions, because they can see directly what's happened when they threw the stone right they 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 feel how they've made the other child suffer and but unfortunately with the internet you don't see that you you it's a consequence free environment where you can say whatever you like as hurtful as it may be and um you will never see the other child cry and i thought that was really really a sort of clear way of putting it in that you can we, it's this sort of like shouty vacuum where everybody's just screaming all the time, and it's just you know, it's it's easy, it's much easier to say things which you would never say to, to someone's face or to a living being. Forget and again that dehumanization. It's you, it just becomes a sort of words on a screen. You you forget that there's another person at the end. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go into detail, but I've had people say some crazy shit about me, and and I tell, I vent to my close friends. I'm like. You ask anyone that knows me in person, they would laugh at that. They'd be like, that's not him. <laughs> but, but there's no, I bring it up because there's really, with a lot of cases, no nuance. And it's just like, that's, life ain't black and white. This isn't a, well, this isn't the giver. <laughs> it's really weird that we've been given the biggest discussion forum ever created by right. by people in the world. And all we can do is revert to black and white. Like, it's really, that we talk about, you know. Like paradox, but it's that's that's a good point. Um, and I've said similar stuff. Like we have the greatest technology and the greatest tool to like to learn and grow as a human society. But humans are humans. We're dumb. <laughs> we just fight with each yeah. other about stupid stuff. Yeah, really dumb. And actually, I've got a lot of time for dumb. I've got a lot of time for funny. I've got a lot of time for just like looking at stupid stuff on the internet. But I just. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was designed to like help, you know, help, you know, uh, people communicate and share ideas, and maybe like with, you know, back in back in the day with with the uprisings in Egypt and so on to help people who live in totalitarian regimes communicate better. Like 
it was and, and for photos of cats. This is a legitimate use of of, of it. I, I maintain, but definitely wasn't. You know, we didn't. It wasn't intended for us to end up in endless arguments about. Um, you know, whatever kind of stupid thing people are on today are onto today, but this is where we are apparently. I I, I really don't know if it's a good idea that we uh, further explore other planets. <laughs> well, you oh god, well you know there's that theory, and I can't remember the name of it now, which is absolutely maddening. But um, there's that theory that the reason we've never been able to contact alien life is because at a certain point, each society hits peak stupidity and destroys itself. So just on the cusp of um, being able to do and like the, uh, the the travel, the light speed travel, um, we all just implode. And we're getting there, I feel. Uh, that's That sounds pretty accurate. Um, I would love to know something about where, where do you, where do you hope to be down the line? Like as a, I don't know if you currently are, I'm just going to assume, correct me if I'm wrong, please. Um, are you a full-time writer at the moment? Um, I am luckily. Yes. I'm, okay. I'm very lucky to have made that transition. Yeah. That's fan. Congrats. That's, that's my dream too. Thank um, you. yeah, for sure. We're so where do you hope to be? What would be like a comfortable place for you as far as like output of books? Do you is one enough for you each year, every other two books a year, or one every other year? Well, I'm going to my plan is to do one a year for the next three years at least. Okay. Because um, I've got the I've got the stories and um or at least I've got the need, you know, I need, I, and also I'm so lucky to have been given this opportunity and the best thing for me to do is do what I couldn't have done, as I was saying, as a debut author, um, is to, is to, is to really work hard and, and, and follow through on it. Um, so I think I'm going to, I'm going to do, um, yeah, I'm going to do a book a year for as far for as long as I can. It's quite tiring, oh, <laughs> but then sure. life is tiring. But life is tiring. Yeah. Um, and um, we've got so we've got the film thing with Needless Street in process with um, Andy Circus's Imaginarium, which is great. And I'd really like to if I don't know if I can do it as a thing, but let's see. Um, I'd really like to try doing scripted um writing as well but the, i mean the, the real answer to your question is i'm so happy if i'm just here in in five years I'd, I'd be absolutely made up and and delighted you know i've i've been this i, I i'm in a really i've been really lucky and i'm in a really good place i'd love to be in your position one day it's it seems yeah. like it's pretty awesome it's really awesome, and what the nice thing is, is that I did, I did, I went straight from book jail to here. <laughs> like, so it can happen. Like, and I think the thing is just to to try and be ready for it, you know. Um, and, and book book jail is that just because uh, we didn't we kind of brushed on it. Mm. Is that just where your sales aren't super great, and your 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 publisher just doesn't want to put face? Yes, it's where your sales are terrible. No one will offer you. And we had a really hard time selling Needle Street. Wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, and um, you know, credit where credits due. Both my publishers came came in before Stephen King tweeted about it. 
Nice. So, you know, they were just very brave and bold. Um, they and they and they took the leap, uh, you know. Whereas, I mean, we used to have this thing. My agent used, to, which my agent called, I well, I called rejection Mondays. <laughs> my agent would send me all the rejections that we got in the previous week, and this went on for a good four or five. I can't have done it. Must have been three months or so. Oh, but man. Um, it was it was really interesting because I I always think. Because uh, also I did a creative writing course, so I come from um, a master's in creative writing. So I come from like a um, like a culture where you listen to criticism, and I thought, oh, okay, I will read all these rejections to see if there's a common thread. Because if there's a, if four people out of five don't get it, it it's probably not working. Right. So I read all these rejections, <laughs> like. Uh, you know, relax, relievingly and relaxingly or not, every single one of them was different. Every single person had a different problem with this book. Um, okay. a, lot, a, a lot of them, actually, the only common problem that people said was they were a bit hesitant about the cat. And I was like, well, that's the thing is that's non-negotiable. The cat is... <laughs> the cat Where are you is, supposed to change about Olivia? Uh, well, they would, people suggested that she should be a person instead, like no, a person living work. with her. I know, I agree. I know. <laughs> Exactly. They don't no, get no. it, man. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> so I, anyway, I, um, and also it came. This also came after a big changeover. Like I, I, I left my agent, and uh, you know, so it was it was a new, brand new agent who had to go back for me <laughs> in quite difficult st- circumstances, and she just like. She just became this champion with a sword, like kind of fighting for this impossible book about a talking cat from someone who'd sold minus copies with their last book. <laughs> like it was really, it was really like it. It wasn't a given that this was going to find an audience, and this, right. that's what makes me triply, quadruply grateful that it's found it's found an audience. You know. You know what? Going back to if this happened to you as a debut author. I mean, I don't want to say you would have acted this way, but maybe maybe it's better that you went through the downfall first because you can appreciate the upside more. Oh, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I, I said earlier, and I, I think I stand by it, I'm not sure I would have been ready anyway to... Uh, to, to have to have this, I would. I'm not sure I would have been ready to be able to produce books at the rate that I now want to produce them. Um, but also to know what, yeah, to, to know what it feels like to be kind of not 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 doing very well makes this again kind of unbelievable. I mean, really, like the first the first um, like month after um, a my. American book deal and and B Stephen King's tweet were as I said just wall to wall swearing. I just swore all month. I was just sitting there going. It's funny when you swear because you do it so infrequently. I must I must be keep I must be like keeping a tighter control of myself than usual. That's that says that's hilarious. This is so random, but I meant to say earlier when we were talking, and I feel like I'm going to mess up her name, Gillian, Gillian, Gillian Flynn. When you were talking about Shaken, so I had one moment like that with a guest, and that was one of my favorite authors ever, Peter Straub. When he came on last month, all all I did was tweet and ask him, and he was so kind to say yes. So for 
And I've gotten shit from my peers for that's how my approach is, but I don't give a shit if someone sees me get ignored. I I don't care who it is. I, I tweeted I tweeted George R. R. Martin. I'm expecting the reply. If he does, awesome. If he doesn't, I expect that. But the whole day before, because this was on a Friday evening. So I'd work from seven to three, and then I got home and we recorded at four. Mm-hmm. The whole work day, I was jittery my boss asked if i was okay i'm like i'm talking to someone that i i'm like dude he's like he he's so highly praised by me for a reason and and i'm like i don't know how to react and i still can't believe i talked to him and we email sometimes um i get it i totally get it um i loved black house did you read yeah. black house um that's the thing i haven't read that one yet i i can't believe i haven't but i'm a late bloomer with with reading it's really spectacular. I just loved it. Um, anyway, sorry, go on. No, I probably, I'm probably going to get shit for saying that, but I'll, I'm not going to say I read a book that I haven't yet. There's so many good books. No, why should you? No. Awesome. Lucky, lucky you, because now you get to read it. Yeah, uh, I fell in love with Coco. That's like my book that my I, w- I had a debut that I already wrote, and I was going to plan on trying to push that. But then I read Coco, and I'm like, okay, this is inspiring new stuff. But uh, my other thing that I wanted to bring up, which was I totally get how if you weren't if you were a debut author, you don't think you'd be ready for this output. I've been writing with the mindset of being a novelist since 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, I've written over 10 novels and about a million words worth of stories. But I went in with the mindset of I got to get all this stuff out before I'm happy. And I'm glad I waited. I'm glad that I didn't self-published not knocking self-publishing but for me i wasn't ready until eight years after and i'm still not completely ready it it took me seven years to finish my first novel and that's not because i because i was i was doing it right it's because i wrote at least 10 other crappy versions of that novel (laughs) and just kept going because you're teaching yourself to write as you write and it's you know it's an art form um it's it's your 10,000 hours, isn't it? Well, more in my case. but yeah. Well, I, I just thought, like, with my debut o- novel, you only get one. And I want to never look back. Like, when I'm an old man, I want to be like, yeah, I'm proud of that. And <laughs> you, I mean, you may not be. I don't know. I look back on mine and I'm like, they feel like old boyfriends. I'm like, I can't. <laughs> I hate time. my old boyfriends. Yeah, they do. They feel like old boyfriends. I'm like, I can't believe I was into you. You know, but no, it's not hilarious, but, but it's also very fond, you know, because you, you're seeing almost like a snapshot of your past self, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That that's true. Which is kind of weird how authors rewrite some of their older books. Like with King, he wrote the stand and there was this author that pointed this out to us. I never thought of, I've only read the, uh, his 1990 something version. Right. And um, this one author named Daniel Barnett talked about how he read both and he loves them, but he likes the one from the seven, I think it's seventies because it had a different tone and the way he described them, like now I want to read that version. It sounds more, more raw and more like it has more meaning. And I don't mean to take away what King meant. I'm not in his head. I don't know what he meant, but it sounds like a version I'd love. <laughs> I love. I love one of my favorite things about is is how rude Stephen King is about about the first uh, the first um, installment of the Dark Tower. <laughs> He's like, it's really bad. Yeah. 
I don't think it's bad at all, but like, I just, I really like respect his like, his, his really adamant stance that it's a terrible book. <laughs> yeah, you gotta be your worst critic, I guess. Um, you know what? We're hitting about the hour and a half mark, okay. so yeah. we can, uh, I got, we still have questions, but if it's all right with you, uh, are you okay with wrapping down? Fine. Thank you so much. I've had such a lovely talk. Oh, absolutely. Same here. But uh, we still got a few more questions. I just wanted to yeah. kind of throw that out there. Uh, what... I'll, do, I'll, I'll be quick. I won't, I won't do my... I won't no, 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 no. I'm not asking you to rush. I'm in no rush today. Um, what are you currently reading? Am I currently reading? It's a really good question. Oh! Because <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I don't write... I don't read while I'm writing. And I'm writing. Oh, okay. Um, but the last thing I read that was absolutely fantastic, um, two things, um, was uh, Mrs. March by Virginia Fito. I think it's Fito or Fito, F-E-I-T-O. Um, it's about a New York socialite who goes slowly mad. Uh, or does she? Is she going mad? <laughs> or is her husband a maniac? We don't know. It's really, really good. And um, it starts in a bakery, which uh, <laughs> is just my idea of hell. So... And Mrs. March by Virginia Flight Home. Um, and then the last, the other last thing that I read that was absolutely fantastic, which I hope, I don't know if it's coming out in the States, when it's coming out in the States, is A Narrow Door by Joanne Harris. Um, Joanne Harris, obviously very of chocolat fame, is an incredible thriller writer. And she wrote this sort of really eerie, horrible book about a boy's school, which gets its first um, female kind of principal. Oh God! Um, and they discover a body on the grounds on her first day. So it's this. It's and it, it just it's got so many layers and textures. It's really good. I, those two things were the last two things I read. I'm not reading now because I'm working on book five, and I just this. I don't want to make too much noise in my head. You know. Oh, hey, your process is your own. Um, so for me, I. Just, uh, I'm, I'm almost done with in another Stephen King blurb. Richard oh, Shizmar's I read that. Reading. I think it should, I should be on there somewhere. No, fuck it. Probably got more important people. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, reading this at the same time as reading your book, they're both dealing with serial killers, but in completely different ways. It's just so cool seeing two different, the same subject matter kind of, Attached by complete uh, attacked by two different ways, and I just I love it. I love it so much. It, it fulfilled so many needs in me, like my true crime need, coupled with my need for like horror. It was it was incredible. Like I I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the detail, and it's such attention to care, and the whole thing just gave off this incredibly uncomfortable, awful atmosphere. I just thought it was great. And the fact that he's in it, like talk about metafiction. I still maintain that Richard Chismar did it. <laughs> I love Rich. He's so, you know, talk about like being like, oh, well, taking a step back. How is this happening? I'm looking at my guest list, and I mean, I'm taught when you added follow me back on Twitter alone. I was, I, I was like, beside Aww. myself. I, I still don't get why why people follow me. And I talk to Rich. I talk to him sometimes, and other authors. And mm. I love your guys' stories so much. And then. When you're a nice person, I'm just like, why are they talking to me? No. <laughs> no. I still get imposter syndrome. That is incredible. That, well, that's incredibly sweet, but yes, it is imposter syndrome. Yeah. 
Um, the other book I'm about to start uh, yeah. is by Eric LaRocca. He came out with a book this year, a novella, called Things Have Gone Worse Since We Last Spoke. And oh, I've heard of that. How is it? How is it? For me, I think that it's one of the best contemporary horror books I've ever read. And it's short. It's like 109 pages. Okay, and okay, okay. Yeah, I'm writing it down. Hold on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, it's, yeah. It's sold over 20,000 copies. I'm, it's just like he wrote, and I, this doesn't spoil it. It's about two women, and they're talking over the early aughts, um, early chats for LGBTQ um folks and it's so weird like talk about people online being presumptuous and rude some people have called him out and said how dare a straight white cis guy write about this he's gay he's very yeah. open about him, him being gay and it's like don't don't assume that shit i know people with yeah. Stephen graham jones have assumed him being a white guy writing about natives and it's just it's it's baffling for and it makes me yeah. wonder, as a straight white dude, I'm like, I'm going to get, I can't reply to any of that because they're going to think I'm a piece of shit if I write about any of this. But it, it, my whole point is, is it's so. Never get never get into an argument on the internet. Nope. Just don't. I stop. Don't do it. I it's, used to. Yeah. No, no, nobody wins. <laughs> Least of all. You, you, don't, you don't really learn from each other. Like. Like the, this is why I love the show. We're talking, even if we had different views on insert anything, like we're talking respectfully and we're learning mm. from each other. That's why I love talking to people. Um, but Eric's uh, got a collection. It just came out, and I love his titles. It's called "The Strange Things We Become" and other dark tales. I haven't read it yet. I'm going to get to that in about a day. Um, and I just—he's such a sweet guy. So. And he's very, you know, as you are too, it's very apparent. Um, a lot of people that, a lot of writers I love, they take their work seriously, but yeah. they don't for themselves. And and that's kind of a, I like, I think that's a nice way to to walk your life. Oh, yeah, I think so. Oh, well, I've enjoyed this so much. Thank, I would unexpectedly moving conversation to have on a Saturday night. <laughs> I, me too. I, um... I'm not gonna lie. Uh, I I came very close to almost crying when we were talking about that mental health because it, it actually yeah. I don't talk about it publicly because yeah, I just, difficult. I, I don't want to talk about my aunts and stuff because like they're just in a place that I, I still don't understand and makes me really sad. But I'm glad we talked about it. Me too. Thank you, Mark, thank you for telling me. I don't know if you will include it in the show. You I will. No need to. Yeah. Okay. I, I know I don't need to, but I, I think it adds. And it and the reason why I don't cut most stuff I say, I don't know who's going to listen to this, and and not even this year. I don't know who's going to listen to this years from now, and they could relate and it could help them. So that's why I don't cut stuff. Most. Stuff I think I that's say. really that's a really good point, and particularly men talking about mental health is very important. That's another thing that um, I, 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 you know, I've grown to not like the term toxic masculinity only because mm. of someone that said it in a better way where it's, um, it's a set, it's, 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 it, it just evokes like this bro attitude. I don't like that attitude, but mm. it kind of fights one bad thing with another more. So I like to view it as just like sad um, where guys mm -hmm. have this need to not show their feelings. So I like to kind of battle that with saying, this is how I feel. And I know you, you can relate to it, but yeah. just a few, few more things, if that's okay, Kat. For sure. Yeah. 
Listeners, if you have any interest in checking out our store or checking out articles from some of our lovely uh, guests, including uh, Eric LaRocca, wrote a great piece in uh, Pride Month along with Bree Morgan, go to deadheadspace.com. If you want to go to the shop, there's a shop tab there. Uh, and where can people follow you, Kat? Um, at uh, Katrina Ward on Twitter. Um, and that's kind of it. I, I don't know why I don't have a website. I'm an idiot. No way. You know what? Get someone. You're probably at the position where you can get someone to do that for you. <laughs> um, do you have any final thoughts? Any weird noises you want to make? <laughs> I think I've made probably my weirdest noises already, like many, many times. I mean, I've also done some swears. But um, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. And thank you for a wonderful, wonderful discussion, which has really made my day. Oh, man. Oof. I don't, I don't know how to reply to that. I can't believe I made your day. That's you. You made my like. I took my time with your book. I finished it. I got no problem saying this. I finished it last night at one thirty in the morning because I just, it's, it's a not terrible a, time to finish my books. <laughs> oh yeah, it was, but it was so wonderful um, because I'm at my most vulnerable, surrounded by the, even my wife's sleeping right next to me, but it's dark, mm-hmm. and and uh, I I, uh, I took my time with it for a reason. I wanted to digest it and there's a lot to digest, but my final thoughts are thank you for talking to me and um, we would really love it if you come back next year for season three, which starts January, mid January. Um, So, so you meet Brennan and maybe another guest host can talk with you. That'd be great. I'd love that. Please. Uh, uh, I was going to say guest listeners next episode, episode 115 is with Heather Levy. Her debut novel, Walking Through Needles, uh, is out. It's been out for a little while. Um, that airs this Thursday. And actually, Kat, your book is out in the UK. I can't believe I forgot to mention this, but it's not out yet in the US. So when this airs September 20th, when does your book come out? September 28th. So um, you got yeah. eight days to pre order this book. <laughs> Don't take my word for it. Stephen King and Joe Hill and so many others, Christopher Golden. Have praised this book. Uh, Kat, it's been an honor talking to you, and thank you for almost making me cry. I like it. I need those. (laughs) (laughs) Come on someone's podcast and make them cry. Okay. I would. (laughs) All right. (laughs) My boyfriend is going to take me out for dinner now. So we're going to go. And I'm going to go and celebrate. And um, thank you so much for everything. And speak soon. Yes, you know what? We'll, we'll talk eventually. Listeners, thank you. You have many podcasts to choose from. We appreciate you picking us. Have a great day, Kat. You too. You are now leaving Deadhead Space.